Hello, and welcome to Here Are the Nominees, a podcast all about former... Uh, well, I guess all, form, all, all movies are former. Uh, <laughs> Technicality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, movie, it's a podcast all about movies that have been nominated for Academy Awards at some point in time. Uh, I am Brent, joined as usual by David. David, how are you? Hello, user. <laughs> oh, I like the tie-in. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. So, speaking of, you're on a new computer for this, uh, um, for this podcast. Yeah. Um, Congratulations. I've been using my, thank you. I had only had like a work laptop and then just like my phone or, or a tablet for stuff. And I just wanted a personal laptop to do stuff with. Um, like uh, record a podcast and I don't have to borrow my wife's laptop to do it. So our- Because just like Tron, my work laptop has a master control function where I can't download anything to it, which is fair. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, so whatever program we're recording on, uh, you are, uh, it, it believes in you. you. It does. You are its user. <laughs> you are its, its god. That's absolutely right. Um, so yeah, we watched Tron, the 1982. We certainly did. Classic. So let's start off with uh, our typical opening opening thoughts. Um, had you seen Tron before? Um, no, I've never seen Tron before. Um, had some cultural awareness of it, obviously as like a sci-fi sci-fi uh, influenced kid, but uh, had never watched it before. Um, I'd seen probably parodies of it, and watching this made me think of like a, some South Park episodes that reference this and other things. But uh, no, um, I had seen the sequel, Tron Legacy, which makes a lot more sense now. Um, well, at least a little bit more sense. Um, especially the uh, the language in that movie. But yeah, had never never seen it before. How about you? Uh, I thought I had seen this movie. I have seen Tron Legacy and thought I was watching Tron, I think, at the time. Well, it was surely not at the time. At the time, I knew the movie I was watching did not come out in the early 80s. But, I, uh, yeah, I, my memory of, I mean, why would I, why would I watch a sequel to a movie I've never seen? That is so against the way I typically operate that it seemed impossible to me that I had seen Tron Legacy. But I had... Um, yeah. never seen this. Let me guess, you did it for the Garrett Headland of it all. Yeah, it was... Being a Garrett Headland completionist. It was, it was in my uh, Garrett Headland, yeah, uh, quest. <laughs> Headland quest, yeah. as I call it. I was going to say, if you're confusing, like, watching this because you'd watched the other one, I was like, well, both have a young Jeff Bridges, to be fair. <laughs> they had a, a... Before they mastered it, de-aged... Jeff Bridges and Tron Legacy, I remember being very, um, uh, I don't know. It just, it was very whatever it was. I don't even have an adjective for it. Unnerving a little bit, yeah. I guess. Um, maybe that's why I thought I'd seen it, because I thought I had seen the Jeff Bridges one, but he's in both. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't remember really anything about what Tron Legacy is about. So, uh, even though we're, even though I'm asking you this before we talk about Tron, what what's the plot of Tron Legacy? Um, if you can remember, it's like the I think it's the next generation. I think someone is Flynn's son, and it's like the whole thing was the sequel to Tron was supposed to be Flynn lives, or something like that, and or 
or Clue lives or I don't know. But uh, his his dad, who he thought died, Garrett Hedlund's dad is Jeff Bridges, Flynn in this movie. Um, he gets like some code to come see him or something and return to Tron. I don't know. And then it's it's just a uh, gobbledygook and and all kinds of crazy stuff and Daft Punk. And that's pretty much what it was. The wor- that's what I remember. The word it. gobbledygook came into my head several times while watching this movie. Like trying to think about the plot of this movie. Uh, even the title of the movie was a surprise. Like it's uh I thought even you said like Return to Tron, but Tron's not where they are. Tron's just like a side character in the movie. Is he? Well, I guess we'll have to think. Is he the side character? Is he the hero? Who knows? Well, yeah, I guess the way the 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 way the movie is framed from it, it, either way, it's Tron is neither the main character or well, is neither Jeff Bridges who is ostensibly the main character or or the setting, uh, which. It was weird when this guy was like, "Yeah, I'm Tron." <laughs> Wait, there's just a there's just a, a program named Tron in here. Um, yeah, Tron not being Jeff Bridges' character or where they're at or like the main reason you know the movie is is really that Tron's like the, the Hootie and the Blowfish of <laughs> sci-fi movies. In that respect, yeah. what are other what are do you have any other movies that come to mind that are like named for? Um, secondary characters. Well, maybe it's the Thief of Baghdad. Yeah, this this, is, this movie is it's it, you know it follows the tradition of the Thief of Baghdad, which is it's named for. Although that's debatable who the main character is, I guess. But um, yeah, I think we argued that uh, the the thief was the main character. Should have the best part. Yeah, although the movie didn't realize it until about halfway through, but. Uh, <laughs> This, they figured it out. It would have been great if they just cast Flynn aside. <laughs> this is just a Tron movie for the second half. Um, for all the Bruce Box Lightner heads out there. Yeah. Okay, so what were your thoughts, just general thoughts? Did you like Tron? Good, great, bad, mixed? It, it's, it's, it's kind of defies <laughs> it's that kind of... I'd say binary, trinary, or quaternary, <laughs> that that kind of scale. It's not really good, great, bad. It's 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 really hard to describe how I feel about it. It's really not uh, a movie, <laughs> um, but it is uh, very impressive. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It's like it on the one hand. You know, it feels like entire chunks of the movie are missing that, like, explain things. Or you can just see where they didn't have any money. So it's just like they'll just not show what's supposed to happen happening. But also, like, the stuff they do show, it's insanely singular how it looks. Um, I'm I'm very disappointed because I came into this podcast thinking... uh, Okay, David's gonna, he's gonna, like, make some, he's going to make a case for why this movie is good, and I will buy it. Or he's gonna make a case for why this movie is bad, and I will buy it. Because uh, my feeling entering this, unfortunately, sounds exactly like yours. Because it is just um, me being impressed routinely on a technical level with what they were doing, and it it was a fun ride to be along on. And I frankly 
did not understand a lot of the plot, <laughs> nor did I really care to. Uh, it was just uh, going from place to place and doing a different thing, and I didn't really care about all, many of the characters, but I feel like I didn't really need to all that much. Well, the the gauntlet has been thrown thrown now, and I'll try to I'll try to get there. Yeah. Um, this this could be the er story of entire video game narrative. Fetch quests were born here. I don't know. Well, <laughs> there may be some religious overtones that we're, we may get into some Old Testament stuff here. Well, let's get into <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or not. <laughs> let's get into the plot. I can't believe there's this many words on the plot in Wikipedia. Because, uh, I mean, props to whoever did this. It's much more uh, detailed than I could possibly have come up with. Like, they do a they do a good job um, of uh, making it seem like a narrative is happening, like mm-hmm. like things kind of have cause cause and effect, which is pretty good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I probably, probably would have written it with all like the it's like all buzzword stuff like de raising the clonk and florp the glonk. <laughs> Yeah. For me to really understand this plot, I think you would have to strap me in uh, Clockwork Orange style and force me to force me force my eyeballs to not look away because uh, you know, go into the kitchen to grab a soda or something and I would come back in and say, "Wait, where are they now?" Ah, who cares? It doesn't matter. Um and that was uh it it really didn't. They didn't really revisit anything that I had missed out on. So um all right, here we go. Kevin Flynn is a leading software engineer, formerly employed by the computer corporation Incom, who now runs a video game arcade and attempts to hack into Incom's mainframe system. Uh, to be specific, Flynn now runs a video game arcade and attempts to hack in. Uh, however, Incom's master control program, MCP, halts his progress. Within Incom, programmer Alan Bradley and his girlfriend, engineer Laura Baines, discover that the MCP has closed off their access to projects. When Alan confronts the senior executive vice president, Ed Dillinger, Dillinger claims that the security measures are an effort to stop outside hacking attempts. However, when Dillinger privately questions the MCP through his computerized desk, he realizes the MCP has expanded into a powerful virtual intelligence and has become power-hungry illegally appropriating personal, business, and government programs to increase its own capabilities. The MCP blackmails Dillinger with information about his plagiarizing Flynn's games if he does not comply with its directives. So... I gotta, I gotta jump in here. and Go for it. With the Wikipedia editors there, I feel like the explanation for what Master Control is in this first paragraph is a little misleading. I feel like halfway through the movie, you eventually realize you know what's going on and he gets blackmailed and and all that stuff yeah this is not the introduction (laughs) this is like this is what the movie was supposed to tell you so we're just going to tell you in the first paragraph here (laughs) so what they've done is the first scene is like well it's just the first scene is like you're going through the cpu like the matrix like the city is a matrix like all this kind of stuff there's some stuff in the real world and then, like, kind of like on a dime, there's just Sark, Commander Sark, and do you believe in users? Uh, we got some kidnapped military programmers, and I'm going like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> That's the part of the movie where it seems like such a jump to yeah. me. Yeah, 
Um, so it does it does go inside the computer very early, and you know I gotta say I I think in a lot of ways the graphics do look dated. They look like they're from the eighties, but they, I mean they look good for the time. But we can tell that they're what time they're from. And um, but that being said, it's it's not so much that this was amazing for its time, but that. Uh, it didn't get any better because when they go inside the computer, those graphics look just as, just about as good to me as similar scenes from the mid and late 90s when, for some stupid reason, Hollywood was still obsessed with going inside the computer. And so, <laughs> you know, like uh, the, the famous scene from, what is it, Hackers? Where uh, it's like really awful, like flying like a helicopter or something through a computer or something. It's... Like a lawnmower man where you're always like wormholing through things. Yeah. This looks just as good as a decade later, uh, as, as Hollywood came up with a decade later. So maybe they were just trying to copy Tron uh, for a long time until basically That's... the Matrix. Yeah. Pretty early we're getting like the, the in the computer setting about what they're going to do. And it's, 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 it's not bad graphics. Like it's actually the visuals are... I think it's it's like it's it's so unique the yeah. way, the way they did it and that it's very like high contrast black and white that kind of looks good yeah and the colorizing and um, to be fair uh, did you watch this on Disney Plus yes okay so we watched uh, uh, full disclosure that's like the remaster they like remastered the graphics and stuff um, apparently I don't know what the original one would look like. But the the colorizing is very good um, for what they were doing with it, and the intense contrast, like almost. Uh, I'm I'm gonna try my best to get highfalutin about this this movie to get myself and you excited about it, like uh, almost like German expressionistic yeah things I can of like see that. corridors and contrasts and stuff yeah it's um I know this was 1982 and people were just starting to dream of like what what. What would a good visual analogy for being in a computer be? But it's it's uh, I don't know. It's super unique and really cool looking, kind of still. It, to it's, to a degree, it's completely ridiculous for what it's actually trying to be, which is inside a computer. It yes. it works well though as like a Wizard of Oz style transportation to this like fantasy land that is computer themed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, think it's, I read on it's, it's, it one of the looks great. things that it's kind of based on uh, the structure of like Alice in Wonderland, which, if you take the, it's a, it's a pretty good, you know, it's pretty kind of faithful to that kind of structure, but it's good as going to a whole different world that has its own visual. Actually, you make a good point. Kind of Wizard of Oz ish, as it has its own visual language. It's not like the real world, like mm-hmm. like Oz being in in color and going back to sepia toned in, in Kansas. That's kind of the effect they got going with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually really did enjoy the design of the computer world. Uh, there's there's no good name for this. It's just inside the computer. That's all. That's all we can call this. Incom inside income. Um, yeah. Um, which I don't know that is if it's all income. There's like um, RAM is an actuarial program. <laughs> There's things that aren't income. Well, I guess master control is, is stealing other programs. It's hard to tell. Like, what do we call this land? You know, yeah. to your point, it would have been 
great if they they called it CPU or something. I do. Or we're we're living on the motherboard. I do wish a little bit they had gone deeper into their uh, kind of world building for this world within a world. Um, because I I, I laughed when uh, somebody somebody has the line exactly who does he calculate he is, <laughs> and. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, this is going to be like Battlestar Galactica, where there are words that, uh, like fracking here and there, and uh, they're, they're substitute words, but they're, they're, I, I don't think I know, I'm sure there were others, but I didn't notice any others the way I noticed calculate. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that down. That was also good. And later on, someone says, oh, my user, <laughs> like, um, yeah, it's like, yeah, that, that's clever. Yeah. Kind of kind of back patty clever, but, uh, you know, it's all part of building the world of thinking, you know, what you know, what would you exchange this for that in a whole different kind of setting? And before we move on down the plot line, I, I have to, I, I'm, I'm a little unclear. So, income, it seems like is this, like, huge, huge thing, like this uh, almost oppressive company. And it seems like they're built on uh, getting quarters from kids off four games. <laughs> it kind of seems like that's like the crux of their business are these four games that uh, they stole from Flynn. And so I'm confused as to just how big the stakes are in this movie. Yeah. The, like the, the when you see, um, I think it's when you see Alan Bradley for the first time and he's like in a cubicle and there's like the, the giant cubicle maze and it's it's a, a giant building that has lasers too and ncom is essentially atari that's <laughs> like atari was kind of like some guys in california and like like rented a residential building <laughs> back in the day i don't know what people thought video games were <laughs> it yeah i kept like my mind was looking at dillinger in the suits and like the um i love the computerized desk by the way i want that so bad <laughs> with the built-in black display to it but like that and like the the 80s aesthetic i was like okay this is like nakatomi plaza type like do they do securities is this like some things like no they build up they build space paranoids and matrix blaster (laughs) right Um, space paranoids speaking of the computer desk I, i was wondering is this the first instance of like a unrealistically you know uh technological piece of furniture that like now Tony Stark's entire mansion is made out of. But uh, um, I wonder if this is the earliest computerized desk, which seems to be so common now in movies where uh, somebody will have some like, you know, super, super cool computer desk thing that, I mean, nowadays because computers are so ubiquitous now, it has to be like a, uh, uh, computers in the air or like computer screens that are in the air that you reach up and grab and throw things around Mm -hmm. you know like i said tony stark style um i wonder if this is the one of the earliest examples of a a fully computerized room set in the real world i don't know there's probably some james bond stuff back in the day that that did some stuff yeah i can't nothing else comes to mind but I don't know what it was, but I saw that guy's desk, and I know I'm supposed to think he's a bad guy, but I was like, just, man, that'd be a really cool desk to have. It's so smooth, and your computer's right in it. <laughs> Maybe it's like having moved recently, but I'm, I was just like really envious of his office supply, office setup. 
and it's also going to be hard for me to work my notes in because the plot uh, description here is just, I feel like the plot here is just in its in its proper order rather than the actual order we saw things in the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, I kind of like, I kind of break my notes up to the uh, little inside trade secret. Break my notes up. I have little paragraph breaks for the Wikipedia plot, mm. and I have like three pages of notes just in this first paragraph of like, okay, the MCP blackmails Dillinger. I feel like that's halfway throughout the movie, but I can't, you know, it's like remembering a fever dream. Like, where was that feathered dragon? Oh yeah, that was, he was in the, the parallax dimension when I... Close my eyes. Where uh, I mean, most of my most of my notes were taken in the first like thirty minutes of this movie. Um, yeah, can I, we I, talk about the light cycle game? We see the light cycle game really early. In the oh, movie, sure, right? yeah, it, and that's one of like the lasting um, kind of images of Tron. That's one of the things I thought of was the light cycle game. Yeah, it's the only game that I was aware of going into this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically Snake. But competitive snake. <laughs> I literally wrote in all caps, competitive snake. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you have a snake and they have a snake. And, you know, you just uh, you keep going until somebody runs into a tail. Um, and programs are erased from the network when they do. They play to the death. Yep. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, it, it's it's kind of cool. I kind of wish that there was a little more to it, like, because um, I think watching it happen is kind of thrilling, and I think it's one of the better parts of the movie. And I, I wish there was a way to stretch that out more. But unfortunately, due to the nature of the game, uh, I don't think it's designed to be a particularly long game. Yeah, it's it's really early, and then there's kind of a quick scene later where they're doing a light cycle, jet walls, and all that stuff. And then Flynn just kind of, you know, just uh, shortcuts himself out of the whole game. It's like, by the way, I, I you know, there was a tie-in Tron game, uh-huh. arcade game in 1982. I actually played it um, leading up to this podcast. <laughs> I is, thought you meant you had played it at some point. No, you, you sought no, it out and played it. I sought it out. Okay. I, I'm that much of a, a investor in the, the deep research that goes into this podcast. <laughs> It is uh, close to unplayable. Um, understanding what you have to do. Um, light cycle is part of it. It's essentially like five mini games, and you got to beat each mini game to go to the center. I didn't even come close to beating more than one or two of them. And it's really uh, when you to choose different games. It is. I kind of only understood that. Like, when I was finished playing, oh, I could choose different games. It's, like, completely non-intuitive. But the uh, the light cycle game is uh, in the game is Snake. <laughs> in the Tron game. <laughs> and then there's, like, a recognizer game. And um, one where I just, like, I, I just died instantly. I didn't even realize what it was. So, I don't know. Thumbs down on the Tron game. Just while, while we're talking Tron. <laughs> Uh, that game won coin-operated game of the year, according to Electronic Games Magazine. Yeah, well, well, David in 2021 is giving it a thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so um, I don't 
remember exactly the context. It, it might be Dillinger's arrival. Um, but I thought the coolest visual maybe in the whole movie was set in the real world. And it's the helicopter, the neon red lined helicopter that's flying through the night. And I thought that looked so cool. Uh, I just made, I just wanted to point that out. That was a badass looking helicopter. Um, yeah. And, uh, okay. So early on we meet the MCP. Uh, yeah, you know me. Where, where it's, is uh, it's basically talking about how it wants to eradicate the true believer programs. So it's basically waging a religious war against uh, programs of faith. Um, yeah, F- uh, yeah, religious cleansing. Yeah, and it, it made me wonder, and I, I know we get into this stuff later, but uh, it made me wonder if. 1982, post-Vietnam. I wonder if uh, this is a, a bit of a U.S. versus USSR anti-communist message here of, uh, you know, a, a, an all-controlling state that squashes religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there's a, a, a mix. I wonder if that got mixed in a little bit for that purpose because it doesn't. Oh. it doesn't seem to be particularly relevant to the rest of the plot of Tron um, to have the these programs be uh, to have the MCP talk about how they need to like crush all the true believer programs out there yeah I'm, um, I think that's definitely there on purpose there um, getting rid of users and user inputs at, for like a totalitarian um, menace that communism was like they're gonna snatch up all businesses and it would be controlled by the state there's a lot of the uh, amoeba like consuming of you know it's going to take over everything mm-hmm. and you'll have to, you'll have to go through the mcp if you want anything like you know like a, a bread line that's 15 blocks long to get your bread from the government kind of thing um i also don't know why mcp cares <laughs> to get rid of users doesn't seem to I doesn't I don't know now, he, I don't really know why it, it that's part of its purpose. Is it just just because it's become is this like a Skynet thing where it's just become self aware and it's uh it's because it's not getting rid of those programs per se it's getting they become absorbed into MCP right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know I mean I still don't know the the point of it all. Yeah I mean it can take over programs which it does but. Why does it hate users? Users create programs, and it would snatch up programs. So it's like it's getting rid of. It's like a parasite that's getting rid of its host, rather than feeding off its host. <laughs> to get like hating users so much, <laughs> not believing in them. Yeah, it's uh, not a lot of logic know. there. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I, by the way, I was brought. Uh, when I was watching this movie, I was kind of brought out a lot of times because there's a lot of here that uh, that I that reminded me of my work. <laughs> One thing was master control. However many time it comes up, that's that's what we use as like a document service in my company, <laughs> like electronic document. Like you know, procedures are on that, and we do training on it. So every time master control came up, I was like, Ugh. it reminds me. I got to do my master control training when I get back to work. <laughs> I guess that's. I don't know, part of the point. Um, and had you ever heard of 
Alan Bradley before, by the way? No. no. Should I have? So, unless it's an extreme coincidence, Alan Bradley is a manufacturer of PLCs, Programmable Logic Controllers. PLC is like a thing you, you train and tune to run something smartly and can like adjust to, uh, to feedback and tune itself, auto-tune. So you're controlling, uh, I don't know, a PLC with a fan, and depending on the temperature, it'll do different kind of uh, uh, dampers on or something like that. So they, they've, they've been around since like the 40s, and they're like a $4 billion company. Wow, um, they they make the they make a PLC. So, I gotta think. I hope that was an homage to, like a, a PLC that would be used in a, some computing stuff. I'm sure there it is. Go. Lesson from lesson from David. It's either that or it's to honor Alan Bradley, the Canadian mystery writer who wrote the sweetness at the bottom of the pie. Oh yeah. You know, there's a lot of the sweetness at the bottom of the pie uh, tie-ins to this movie. I forgot to talk about. <laughs> It's part of the, the uh, bottom of the pie universe. Tron is just uh, it's kind of a prequel to it. Um, yeah, so uh, also, we, you know, before we move on from Flynn's arcade, uh, I, don't know what, I don't know which game is which. I know he winds up having to kind of play all the games in, uh, in, in the movie mm-hmm. uh, once he's inside the computer. But um, whatever that game is where, where the... the, the Enemy is just space arches, um, slow moving space arches. Uh, I was laughing at how boring that game looked when all the people were cheering him on in the arcade. It was oh, yeah. just ridiculous. I mean, uh, by 1982, you sh- you could come up with something better, I think. Well, that um, was the that was the 3D game, right? Using the vector graphics. Yeah. That was actually ahead of its time. There were no 3D graphics, even like illusion of 3D graphics games back in that day. Not even like uh, the, the Star Wars game. That's what uh, that's what the internet says anyway. Okay. That they didn't have 3D technology to simulate 3D in a in a arcade cabinet at least. Okay. Well, I I, I think then I will I will adjust my argument to just. I can see why people would be interested. I am not interested, or I'm, I, I do not see how people could still be interested long enough to see him set a high score in this because it is the same image over and over and over again. Yeah, uh, that's true. And I don't know how his targeting works on this game because it seems like he just rolls up to it, hits a button, and, and blows up the arch or the, the, you know, the space arch, and uh, everyone cheers as if he, he made like the perfect shot. Um, and it, it's it all seems very slow moving. Yeah, it does <laughs> not seem to require much much input to it. To uh, like, how does how does everyone not get a perfect score every time they play that game? As far as I know, his greatest skill is he is standing there, like playing it. He's the guy who happens to be playing it, which makes him <laughs> oh, amazing. look at his endurance. He's still playing it. <laughs> it's yeah. I, I I wrote down Space Arch's worst game ever. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm jumping around a little, but it's just because. Uh, should I just uh, I, should I, I just to... like fly through the plot and then we just comment on whatever we want to? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Sorry, <laughs> because I don't I don't know where a lot of this fits in either. Um, okay, Laura 
deduces that Flynn is the hacker, and she and Alan go to his arcade to warn him. Flynn reveals that he's been trying to locate evidence proving Dillinger's plagiarism, which launched Dillinger's rise in the company. Together, the three form a plan to break into Incom and unlock Alan's Tron program, a self-governing security measure designed to protect the system and counter the functions of the MCP. Once inside Incom, the three split up and Flynn comes into direct conflict with the MCP, communicating with his terminal. Before Flynn can get the information he needs to reveal Dillinger's acts, the MCP uses an experimental laser to digitize and upload Flynn into the Incom mainframe cyberspace where programs are living entities appearing in the likeness of the human users or programmers who created them. Flynn learns that the MCP and its second-in-command, Sark, rule and coerce programs to renounce their belief in the users. The MCP forces programs that resist to play in deadly games and begins pitting Flynn in duels. Flynn meets other captured programs, Ram and Tron, between matches. Partnered, the three escape into the mainframe during a light cycle, uh, an arcade game Flynn wrote the program for and is skilled at. Uh, but Flynn and Ram become separated from Tron by an MCP pursuit party. While attempting to help Ram, who was wounded in the pursuit, Flynn learns that he can manipulate portions of the mainframe by accessing his programmer knowledge. Ram recognizes Flynn as a user and encourages him to find Tron and free the system before derezzing, which is the death in this realm. Using his new ability, Flynn rebuilds a vehicle and disguises himself as one of Sark's soldiers. Tron enlists help from Yori, a sympathetic program, and at an input-output tower receives information from Alan necessary to destroy the MCP. Flynn rejoins them, and the three board a hijacked solar sailor to reach the MCP's core. However, Sark's command ship destroys the sailor, capturing Flynn and Yori and presumably killing Tron. Sark leaves the command ship and orders its de-resolution, but Flynn keeps it intact by again manipulating the mainframe, while Sark reaches the MCP's core on a shuttle carrying captured programs. While the MCP attempts to absorb captive programs, Tron, who turns out to have survived, confronts Sark and critically injures him, prompting the MCP to give him all its functions. Realizing that his ability to manipulate the mainframe might give Tron an opening, Flynn leaps into the beam of the MCP, distracting it. Seeing the break in the MCP shield, Tron attacks through the gap and destroys the MCP and Sark, ending the MCP's control over the mainframe and allowing the captured programs to communicate with users again. Flynn reappears in the real world, rematerialized at his terminal. Tron's victory in the mainframe has released all lockouts on computer access, and a nearby printer produces the evidence that Dillinger had plagiarized Flynn's creations. The next morning, Dillinger enters his office to find the MCP deactivated and the proof of his theft publicized. Flynn is subsequently promoted to CEO of Incom and is happily greeted by Alan and Laura as their new boss. Okay, so that's Tron. Um, <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> um, I, Commander Sark, who's Ed Dillinger... Just, just checking. That's uh, that's a, an actor I've seen a lot before. I never knew his name. David Warner. Mm-hmm. He, uh, going into this movie, what did you associate him with the most? Who was David Warner to you? I couldn't place him. I actually, okay. when I in the first scene at the very beginning, actually, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was a different actor. I thought it was. Uh, 
Is it F. Murray Abraham, maybe, that I thought it was? Yeah, he's, he definitely has, like, that kind of long face. Yeah. Of, of an Abraham. That was when he had his, like, helmet on, and so I could only just see kind of, it was just, yeah, part of his face, but it was, that's, I actually, I saw that scene and thought, hey, that's a good actor for this movie. <laughs> Got the big guns. Yeah. <laughs> this would have been, like, around the same time as Scarface. <laughs> what would, uh, what, what do you think uh, people would best know Warner from? Well, what I know him from, um, what I instantly clicked with, just because I'd seen it hundreds of times on VHS, was he was the scientist in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. And uh, I kept like, you know, you're not a bad guy. (laughs) Sure, he did some experiments and stuff, but, you know, he helps the turtles defeat Shredder. (laughs) So I I was very conflicted in my feelings about Ed Dillinger because of that. Um, I don't even remember what his name was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, but um, that's what I kept thinking of So I have whenever s- I would see his face. I have some thoughts on the um, dematerializing laser. And, um, <laughs> well, first off, the I encourage anyone, if you, if you haven't seen this movie and you plan on watching it, specifically watch for when Jeff Bridges, uh, his character, is uh, when Flynn is sneaking in to income. Because he has the most comical sneak walk that I have ever seen on film. His uh, David, did you catch it? Did you notice it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, my note was like, he's really playing at espionage here. Oh, my God. It, the, the walk is like something from a cartoon. Like a Looney Tunes cartoon. That, that is his gait when he is walking. Uh, it's bizarre. Like, the direction was, do kind of this thing, but not that. That'd be ridiculous. And Jeff Bridges is like, eh, I look pretty good. I, th- I feel like he they did one take where he was just doing it as a joke. And uh, they turned around and yelled cut. And they're like, awesome, we got that shot. And Bridges was probably like, wait, 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 no, no, no. I'll do it for real, guys. I'm like, nah, nah, we got it, we got it. <laughs> Moving on. We can talk about it a little later, but in reading some of the trivia for this, the original pass of this movie did not have any of the religious overtones. It was mm-hmm. actually kind of comedic. And Flynn was supposed to be a comedic like a side character that kind of steals scenes. They envisioned, they originally wanted Robin Williams to do it. And you can kind of see it in some times yeah. where he's got like these weird one-liners that are just like, huh. Like that wasn't really funny. Structurally, I think that makes a whole lot more sense for this plot. And, yeah, and maybe this is around, I don't know, when like Starman comes out for Jeff Bridges around that time period, or like he's kind of blowing up a bit, and they got Bridges, and one of those things where like, all right, we're going to shift the movie around to this guy. Because it, 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 I mean, he is the main character, but he kind of um, is along for the ride. He's kind of like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China a little bit. Yeah. He's like, uh, he's he's the, the fish out of water, but the main character in uh, Big Trouble in Little China is not him. He's kind of like a bumbling sidekick who's mm-hmm. just the most famous person in the movie. Um, yeah, oh, it's, it's, you know what movie this is like? You know what story? It's, it's the Green Hornet. Hmm. Where the main character is uh, not really the best hero of the bunch. And, uh, and it's Tron just... Is Kato. Tron is Kato. There you go. Yeah. I knew there was something. Something needling in there that, that was bothering me. Uh, so, but but the, going back to this laser and where it is located in this lab. 
We must touch on this later. <laughs> um, so it, when they're testing it out, they, they show us how it works on, on an orange, I think. They, uh, they, they place an orange on this table, and they, they dematerialize it, and then they upload it into the computer realm, where I guess, I don't know, does the MCP have like a little snack or something? I don't know what happens <laughs> to this orange, but... Um, yum, yum, end of line. <laughs> yeah. But the whole time I'm thinking, wait, 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 this, this laser that like destroys a human body or it can destroy <laughs> matter and put it into a computer realm, into a mainframe, it's just at the next table. It's not in like this like epic chamber where everything has to be completely perfect. This is, it's basically uh, the gun from How I Sh- uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids where it can just like tool around and just point it at anything. And it seems like they could have so many office accidents with this thing. It's, it's really dangerous. I, I could not believe that this thing was just just like at a desk. And then there's just more desks around it where people work. And they've just been working on it. And yeah. uh, right there, right there, just like the next cubicle. It, it, it made me very angry. I don't even work in an office and I was concerned. <laughs> So concerned. There's a lot of there's a lot of confidence that the the key cards and the level tiered access is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for getting people out of mortal laser danger. And why it, it why, is, why is Atari building this laser? <laughs> you know, at at my work we have a laser and it has its own room and it's got like protocols and all all this stuff and key card access and it's locked. And ours is probably a tenth of the size of this thing. <laughs> it also, yeah, Atari having this, this seems like the most, the biggest waste of time to get a picture of an orange in your computer <laughs> program. If you, like, if you scale this, if you're trying to make Galaga, do you have to laser blast, uh, like, like a... a uh, stealth fighter jet at the pentagon or something <laughs> you laser that so you can put it into the, your little computer game and half their games are like they're fantastical things that don't exist on earth that they can't put in the game like they, they don't have a a space asteroid uh a, a space invader that they can scan into their game they i mean half their games are gonna have to be artwork anyway you're right this seems like a complete waste of uh time and budget yeah Although, to be fair, if you can afford a laser, you should probably just get a laser, because in any 80s movie, lasers are cool, and they can pretty much do whatever you want them to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's just a lot of shrugging uh, <laughs> in the writing room for uh, a lot of the these movies, where you're like, hey, can lasers do that? And they're like, ah, if you don't know, then nobody else is going to know, so <laughs> nobody, who cares? Yeah. The, the, the movie's plot, I, I had this thought, the, the plot and all like the little like trinkets and stuff and, and things seems to, it's kind of like a, like a, a Mad Libs from like CPU buzzwords from like popular mechanics magazines of the day or like USA Today article on computers, the future, <laughs> like kind of just like plugged in every word I don't know. We're just going to kind of insert it. Yeah. Like RAM, the guy who's just like an actuarial program. Does RAM mean anything? It's 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 memory. No, that's just his name. It's just a, it's it's a computer thing. Yeah. Speaking of names, uh, I, the Wikipedia lists Jeff Bridges as Clue. I, 
I think I heard that once in the movie, maybe. Did they did yeah. they call him Clue? I thought they call him Flynn for most of the movie. Clue is his uh like how Alan Bradley's uh computer interface is Tron and Laura's computer interface is Yori. Flynn's computer interface is Clue at the beginning, who gets yeah. tortured and killed. So when he's popped back in, that's that whole beginning thing where he's like uh, right. fighting the orange tanks and stuff. And he's he's got his little sidekick sidekick bit with him. <laughs> so I, bit was I did not like bit at the beginning, but when bit reappears later in the movie, uh, I thought it was the funniest part of the movie was the no 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 no, <laughs> and then when he says uh, gotta stop this thing, yes, just an, an immediate low yes. Is 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 no one yes? All you can say no. Bit is sassy and we love him. Yeah. Bit is like the the uh oh, what's that fairy from uh Oh my Legend god. Zelda? Yes, I was just about to make that oh. from the sixty four Zelda from Ocarina of Time. Yeah. Uh I think Navi is Navi, the fairy. Yeah. Hey listen. Look. Um. Yeah, that's that, I was getting uh, uh, that kind of vibe. Uh, yeah. when I saw Bit. But I love it, Bit. I won't let anyone take down Bit. <laughs> so what did you think of the uh what did you think of the different mainframe games that he had to play? So we had uh, light, we, we've we already talked, talked about, about light, light cycle. Light cycle, yeah. Um how about the disc t- game on the platforms? Yeah, kind of high stakes bullseye catch. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was kind of cool. It was yeah. uh it's uh, I I liked the disappearing uh, rings of the circle every time uh, the ball landed there. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and the little hand slings. It was like futuristic high lie. Like, I figure, I remember like around this time period, well, I wasn't born around this time period, but I feel like there was like articles like high lie is the sport of the future for like people who had money. It's like, oh, we should bring high lie to North America. It kind of had that, that vibe of, you know, you've been hearing about it. Here's some high lie. <laughs> kind of thing i don't really know what highlight is even that much but i know it's kind of like got a scoopy thing and it's got a ball yeah um it's the i, I know one fact about highlight and it's the, the the ball travels faster in highlight than in any other ball based sport on earth there you go it's like a 180 mile i don't know it's fast i also like the uh i like the physicality of the bullseye like it would be every other ring was uh, negative space, and like you would fall through one ring of it. Mm-hmm. It just looked it just looked cool. And now those are I two different like... games, though, right? The highlight and the the disc game, because the disc game is played like sort of like pong, right? Or no? Or is it caught with the highlight webs? webs? No, I think you're right. I think I'm confusing the the ball game he plays with Crom. <laughs> Where they're catching the ball, and they use their identity discs for the uh, like the disc game. Yes. Um, yeah, and so I, I liked those at the beginning. Also, I think I like the disc game because it is very easy to understand what the game is mm-hmm. and what the object of the game is, and when things happen that hurt your chances of winning the game, it's very obvious to, without explanation to, for us to understand like, Oh, that ring, he's having to jump over that space now. Like that's, that's going to be, make his game more difficult. Uh, I like simplicity in things like this when you can't take the time to explain it because there were other games where, I mean, for example, the, uh, 
floating space arch game where I was not really clear on what the game was or who, what the stakes were other than this arch is going to try to grab his spaceship, maybe? <laughs> yeah. That's about, that's about all I could tell. Yeah, a couple of those, I feel like it would, if it was made today, there would be the tutorial thing about what am I supposed to do here? And someone say, object of the game is to do that. And maybe that's just how I'm used to playing video games now. There's always a tutorial mode where you got to like move your person first and this is how you this is how you do it and then are you ready to play for real? Yeah. Um but uh oh did you did you spot Pac-Man in the movie? I did. It was on Sark's uh little board he was watching like he's yeah. getting through and then it's like literal Pac-Man and Pac-Man noise is like Yeah. Um that's fun. Um, thinking about Dillinger, since we're talking about his little his little uh, iPad that has Pac-Man on it, is Dillinger like a prototype that Steve Jobs based his himself on? <laughs> I thought I thought you were gonna go to Ready Player One, but instead you went to real life Steve Jobs. <laughs> no, real life Steve Jobs. <laughs> Around this time, like some dude kind of stealing a video game. I'm not saying this happened, but that's always the uh, you know the 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 thing about him is he didn't really create stuff. He kind of take took credit for other things. You know, he's more comfortable in a in like the he's got a suit and he likes like the power of it and he's controlling other things. And mm-hmm. MCP is a thing where you can only go through MCP and that's kind of locked off Apple design that they did forward. Did he base himself on Dillinger <laughs> his entire life? <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Um, so what do you, what do you think about in general, um, the kind of the way this, the rest of this plays out, which is just sort of the, the, I don't know, the action movie journey that they go on, um, where, uh, you know, one guy seems to have died and didn't, one guy actually dies, one turns into the hero at the end, um. It all just seemed very routine to me, um, and that's the that's the section of the movie I think I had the hardest time engaging with, which was once I was settled into the visuals of it, then I uh, the plot really couldn't take me further. Yeah, had a hard um, time with that. I I did too. The things that got me excited is when we were doing a new scene. So it's like a new version of how they're going to do stuff or it's like a new visual language we're going to figure out. But uh, it's essentially like uh, it's Star Wars again. I think we mentioned Star Wars last time, but it's very Star Wars. I was so hesitant to write down Star Wars on my pad here, but I, it, I think this movie, it's not exactly aping Star Wars, in, but it is clearly built on some of the things that made the first Star Wars successful. There are elements of this that remind me of the trench run in Star Wars. Uh, there are... Um, I, I, I think that this borrows a bit from Star Wars. And then Star Wars pays it back because... Um, you know the little... Uh, the sailor that this uh, that they travel on in this movie? Yeah, the solar sailor. The solar sailor. I am fairly certain George Lucas uh, stole that design for a ship in the prequel movies. And I, I forget whose ship it is, but it has this, uh, this, this it, sort of kite-like 
um, parachute at the front of it that uh, travels through, and it's it's very similar in design. And uh, wonder if that was just a nod to Tron. Yeah, maybe it's just how I was watching it, and kind of some of the things that kind of didn't make sense to me. But it took me probably a good couple scenes to realize that they were that that was the ship they were on. <laughs> I don't know if you had this challenge, but. I was looking at the visual of the the sailor thing, and I thought it was like, I don't know what I thought it was. It's so like non physical to look at. It's like going riding along a laser beam and consuming and and redeploying it kind of thing. But I thought that that was I don't know what I thought that was like it, that was a message that was going to the IO tower or something. And then when they I think they talk about they were on it, I was like, oh, I did not get that at all. <laughs> I did not. It didn't it didn't dawn on me that that was a thing that had physical space to transport on, <laughs> but it looked cool. It did, and and I I, I do I, I do think I, I was aware that they were on that ship the whole time. But I there are other elements of this of this section of the movie that I just sort of like glossed over actively as I was watching it, just because it really was just like a well now we got to go here and now this person needs to go here and it, it's just kind of. I don't know. It's just I think the movie uses up a lot of its surprises, and not not necessarily narrative surprises, but just mm-hmm. its 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 punch to the viewer. Uh, you know, of like this is cool. Look at look at what we got for you. I think it uses up pretty much most of what it's got before we get to the final act, and the final act is mostly just like, uh, well, you gotta make Jeff Bridges a hero. And we've got to have this happen and this happen. We've got to bring down the MCP in a way that's fairly logical within the framework we've set. But it didn't really... Uh, it's, I think it's the weakest part of the movie because it's, there really aren't any new visuals. Um, and I don't want to slam Tron too much for not having even more visuals than it did. But um, when that's kind of all it has going on for it uh, for, for a good chunk of the movie, then... Uh, it's it needs something else there yeah. in the final act for me to be as engaged as I was at the beginning, at the uh, beginning, which I, I felt like I was very engaged early. Yeah. Brent says, "Entertain me, Tron." Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I was reading something that around this time computers did not have the ability to do to do animation, so they would do a frame in the computer and videotape it, and it was essentially stop motion animation. They would uh, do a frame that would take five or six hours to render and create and videotape it and then do the next frame. And each single frame you're looking at with computer animation is its own six-hour time chunk to do. So they're probably eventually like, let's let's reuse some stuff. Let's kind of... Bring on the recognizers. And And, and I don't blame them for that. And honestly, that's... Uh, where I really want this to be punched up is more in the characters and the plot. Yeah. And if I were more engaged with them by this point in the movie, I don't think I would have minded nearly as much for it to continue to exist in the same setting. Yeah. The more I think about it, is this movie exactly Star Wars? I'm sorry to to go back to it, but there's definitely like a, a, you know, Force (coughs) Jedi stuff in compiling all the scrap into uh, the recognizers into a thing he can fly. He uh, 
the program that shows him the ropes is the one that that dies. Yep. The is that the uh, the Dumont the, the the Tower Guardian? Oh, possibly. I was thinking Ram was Obi Wan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Ram too. There's the uh, and just thinking of of the end. He is the one who can see that there's a weakness to the match control pro- protocol and expose his. Uh, there's only one weakness. You know, essentially the the gray rectangle from like the Star Fox games. <laughs> like you gotta wait till that shows up and shoot it. <clears throat> yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. It's not exactly, but I don't know. I mean, maybe all, I'm, mo- all movies gonna... are Star Wars to me. Like I've, <laughs> I've compared on our old podcast, I compared Home Alone to Star Wars and all the ways it's similar. So I appreciate yeah. your restraint because I think I brought it up with uh, Crouching Tiger last time. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, Another link to Star Wars is Star Wars is uh, Star Wars might be the first movie with it's probably not the first movie because movies we know rarely are the actual first movies, but it may be the first movie of note of consequence that has a 3D <coughs> computer animation in it, and that's the um, the the scene just before the Death Star battle at the end where they're going through the battle or the, uh, the plans for the Death Star and they have a little computer that, that shows them a 3D grid of the trench run where they're going to go mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think that I mean that was five years before and it from what I, from what I know about Star Wars I think it, it took a lot of time and effort to create that very short um, uh, section of the movie and so for them to have created an entire movie around computer graphics, 3D computer graphics, uh, five years later is pretty impressive. Yeah. All movies are Star Wars. Um, uh, I don't know. Was there a... Um, I feel like this is a huge missed opportunity if the answer is no. Was there a, uh, a Frisbee available in stores that was the, uh, the code disc Frisbee? Oh, there should have been. They should have been selling a, a, a like Whammo Identidisc or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll have to talk to someone. We'll interview someone later that lived through Tron. <laughs> that's uh, that's all I got. Um, yeah, I well, really that, liked and, and the, uh, Tron at Tron's cubicle or Alan Alan's cubicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a very prominent n- nod to uh, uh, Klaatu. And uh, um, is it the day the Earth is still? Yeah, Klaatu uh, Barada Nikto is uh, on his uh, on his wall. So, um, uh, which which I actually did, I read some about. I've never seen that movie, and I didn't know much about it. But that uh, I, I think it's very interesting. That quote's never really been um, deciphered exactly. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's never been explained what that quote means. I don't know if it's relevant to computers or if it's just a movie reference. I don't know. Um, there's a famous robot in the day the Earth should tell, but I don't know. There's not a ton of like robot things. Every piece of machinery, with exception of master control, kind of has a human look to it. Mm-hmm. Um, even the like the recognizers have some. They're they're. I thought they were just, they're a robot, but they're just a ship in the end because Flynn builds one and they fly in one. Um, I don't know. I mean, in, in a way, it's a command. So it, it's, um, 
The Robot Hall of Fame describes the phrase as one of the most famous commands in science fiction. So if you're a programmer at a, you know, a computer programmer, then, you know, uh, the world's most famous command might make, uh, maybe that's the relevance. Just something simple like that. There you go. You got it. <laughs> I figured it out. Figured it Live. Out. <laughs> Live on the podcast. Brent deduces something. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's just, yeah, I think the only other thing I had was, I, the visuals still hold up. I guess this is part of the, the remaster thing, but they're still plausible, or cr- at least credible, even if they lack a, I, I agree with you, they kind of get a little repetitive and lack some spice or some change and there's mm-hmm. a lot of they said because uh, it was so expensive and their computers only had two megabytes of memory um, their phrase around the set this is, I'm getting this from the trivia was like when in doubt black it out <laughs> where they would just like add negative space and black things black color to things to give the impression of something being there but uh <laughs> I don't know if this is way too specific, but it gave me a real like Windows Media Player visualization vibe sometimes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Or like like uh, in the days of Winamp, having like a Winamp skin and visualization that was like, like, oh, I don't know how to describe <laughs> it other than that. <laughs> Some of the transitions between scenes that, that don't have people and kind of going through vectors and wormholes and um, things opening to go to the next thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's insanely ambitious, but visually, but uh, I don't know that it totally works. The visual or the Tron in general? I think both. <laughs> I think the visuals work. I'll, I'll take I think they back. work more than they don't. Like, there are a few yeah. moments where I think could, wasn't really that impressed, but I think for the most part, it's it, it's it's a good looking movie. Yeah. Um, but what is uh, so? Let's let's go to uh, let's go to the big thematic question. Yeah. What is what is Tron really about? <laughs> what's what's what is this movie about? Um. Yeah. So the uh, the Cold War thing, I think, is is definitely a part of that, and I think part of the <clears throat> the thing there is uh, it's either a communist state or it could be the fear of Big Brother of like a, being in a they're kind of tied together like a surveillance state where everything is, is controlled and and there's only one answer and it goes through master control and it's like approved what if it's fear of the corporate power the rise of the corporate power like uh, like we see in Die Hard a little bit yeah Taking away free will and like American ingenuity or just individual individuality getting taken away. It's like if you uh, if you believe in the users, you get substandard training, and if you don't believe in the users, you get standardized training, and you can join MCP. Being standardized is like the the worst thing you could do in this movie. It means the absence of free will. You can't really. <clears throat> Flynn's superpower here is really that he can. He can do whatever he wants because he's a person. He doesn't have, um, you know, in a uh, train analogy, he doesn't really have tracks. Well, can... yeah, the computer realm is like his yellow sun for uh, for Superman. There you go. 
he's from a different he's from a, a world where he is normal but he enters into this world and he is a he is a superpowered being um the other thing um that i thought is uh is interesting nowadays is the the interface of technology and identity and people having identity through their data and their avatars. I think it's a little prescient about what was going to happen kind of 20, 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Like all the, all the users have their avatar in the computer world that like have interactions on their behalf, you know, how they're programmed to be. And that's kind of, um, you know, that's, that's definitely a, I was going to say a boomer critique of what, <laughs> what the world is nowadays, but that's a critique of, of social interaction. You know, what it's like nowadays is you forge your identity through your identities and forge your identity through your technological, um, technologically facing self. I don't know. It was, uh, it seems to be a little ahead of its time as you could uh, invest identity into what you're... <clears throat> What you're putting out there. It almost feels like a movie where it kind of wanted to dabble more in some of these things. And uh, there was probably some voice along the way who was just like, hey, hey, just make your computer action movie, okay? <laughs> let's, let's, let's not, this isn't uh, anything too tough to figure out. You've got to keep it fun for the kids here. <laughs> yeah. Just keep, keep uh, doing your crayons in the black and white and <laughs> let's get this picture out. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it's pretty, it's it's a fairly short movie. It's about an hour and a half or so. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a pretty, it breezes by. It's a it's not very long. But um, all right. Are we ready to move on to the ceremony? <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's do it. Well, it was nominated for two. It was controversially nominated for only two Oscars: uh, costume design and best sound. So let's start with costume design. It was nominated against Victor Victoria, Sophie's Choice, La Traviata, and the eventual winner, Gandhi. Um, <laughs> I just love that these five movies are long. Those four movies have to line up with Tron. <laughs> um, so I just I, love the thought of like the costume designer for Gandhi being at an Academy Awards luncheon with the Tron people. It's like, yeah, you did the uh, the the robot aliens. It's like, no, they're they're programs. They're they're reflective of their users. Like, oh, that's nice. You know, that's cute. So I, I actually I've never uh, we've had bad luck lately with me just never having seen many of the other nominees in these categories. <laughs> but I've uh, Tron's the only movie in this category I've seen. I've seen Gandhi such a long time ago. Um, from sheer number of costumes you have to do. Um, that's impressive. It's like the thousands and thousands of extras, and um, that's oh, so definitely this... the. Uh, it, it, in terms of costume design, winning uh, archetypes, you know, you have the. What we've talked about last week was when we talked about costumes. Is you got like the Victorian period, or like lady in a girdle and a, a blowy dress, and is mm-hmm. it period appropriate? Probably, yeah. and then you have. Uh, Kind of costumes for a famous person at like a famous time, mm-hmm. which is what Gandhi's kind of winning for here. And it's, Hist- it's historical epics. Yeah, historical epics and costumes of uh, of gravitas. And uh, I mean, it's Gandhi is 
one of the most iconic like visual images of the of the 20th century probably like the the visuals of what he looks like so I, I could easily see that winning that's the only other one i've seen here i know of two of the other ones i know i should have seen sophie's choice but i i hear it's kind of a downer so i i have uh um i've kind of put it off yeah and i know i know what victor victoria is and i had to look up la triviata it's uh based on a famous italian opera mm-hmm. it's a franco zeffirelli um it's the opera they attended pretty woman which was not nominated uh, in this in this year but i think it was nominated in 1990 um so uh it's funny talking about Gandhi. It's it's like you know a lot of people will say the Academy tends to award acting for or it's the most acting, uh, mm-hmm. rather than necessarily the best acting. Well, it sounds like they nominated or they awarded the most costume design, possibly in history, because uh, didn't Gandhi have a record number of extras until like uh, Return of the King, maybe? I uh, yeah, that's one of the famous things at the time. Is I I forget how many, but it it definitely I remember hearing about that. When I when I watched it, I think it's I watched like, it in class, and I already like hundreds that. of thousands of extras. I think yeah, it's absurd. Um, they should give it a uh, design for just costume purchasing at that point. Yeah, <laughs> if you do that many. Um, I mean, I wonder if it's like well, we most people wore the same thing, but we had two hundred and fifty thousand extras, so <laughs> we did the most costume design of anyone here. Um. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with Gandhi winning, even having not seen it. Um, yeah, I although love, I do think I do I don't mind the nomination for Tron here because it's it the, I think the costumes are kind of kind of cool. Yeah, and they're they're part of that the singular visual of what's going on in the computer world is the high contrast black and white with the with the color. It's just really i'd never seen anything like it and i think people have not tried to do it since or i can't think of anything since that's really that influenced by it um mm-hmm. it definitely stands out to me not that it would tie with i guess gandhi would win here i don't know i'm trying to make it interesting saying tron wins <laughs> okay so we have uh we have best sound as well so the evolution of the sound category has always been confusing to most people, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. What did what was Best Sound aiming for in 1982? Um, Is this just mixing? Yeah, it's come it's come together and separate in 1982. Um, I'll look up these Oscars while you're talking. Yeah, because there was also like Best Sound Effects or Effects Editing. And there's just best sound, and there's been editing and mixing, and they've been the same category, and they've split, and they've come apart and split. It's a, uh, it's it's category in a, 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 a kind of a, a department that's, I don't know, had so this, some identity crises over the years. Yeah, there was an effect, There was an editing uh, category that year. So this is just this is just sound mixing. Right. Um, so just, this is the category that is what you would think best sound would be, which is well, how good does the movie sound like the, the general sound of the movie. Um, so it was nominated against Tootsie, Gandhi, Das Boot, 
and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And the Oscar went to E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Um, I've seen three. I've seen four of the five movies in this category. I've not seen Gandhi, obviously, but I've uh, seen the rest. Um, I don't particularly remember... Well, first off, what did you think of the sound in Tron? Um... Oh man, it's again, it's hard for me to say like the sound editing versus best sound here because it was, it, it was really, uh, I remember in some scenes they would drop out the score and it would just, they'd be confidently doing like booms and like <laughs> booms. They're just yeah. like, and sometimes it would just be completely, I'm thinking of like playing the, uh, the bullseye game where there's, there's no music and it's just like, abstract sounds with like heavy reverb in them mm-hmm. so i guess tron definitely went for it in trying to make something new which was which was i always think is pretty cool when it comes to yeah. sound of like sounds i haven't heard before especially if you're going to be in a world no one's been in before like not recycling the same Foley sounds as you've always done. It's, it's weird then that they didn't get a nomination for editing because the creation of sound is, is in the editing and there were only three nominees that year in that category. Yeah. So that's weird. Yeah. Sometimes in this movie, and I don't know if this is something controversial because I know in reading about it, it's something that the movie is known for is it's like pioneering electronic score, but I found it, grating sometimes <laughs> I found it very obnoxiously uh, loud or forward in in the in the movie if, if this is like sound mixing I, I did not enjoy the score very much um, yeah so it's <laughs> um, you know what's wild Blade Runner was not nominated for costumes or sound or anything like this and tootsie's in best sound (laughs) i like tootsie a lot i think that's a great movie why it's nominated in best sound i have no idea i I cannot explain um yeah i'm not sure tootsie's tootsie's an all-time comedy but maybe it's the kind of thing like a couple years ago joker getting into best sound it's like that they really like that movie and it had sound (laughs) it's good enough sometimes (laughs) Uh, so my pick here, even though I haven't seen it in years, is probably going to be Dust Boot. Uh, because submarine sounds, and that's pretty much my only explanation. It's, uh, sub, you know, sound is a, a very key element, I think, in a good submarine movie, and Dust Boot is a great submarine movie. Yeah, to, to have the, the, it's like the sound of pressure. Mm-hmm. And not just, not just pressure in depth, but like things kind of like coming apart. And, and things working in the water and everything in Das Boot, I'd probably agree with that. The sound is used really good to kind of ratchet up the tension of the movie. Uh, I don't really know what you what you do the best sound for E.T. I guess how E.T. sounds, or... Yeah, there's spaceship um, hmm. yeah. sounds at the end, I guess. Uh there is a lot of, uh, when, when E.T. is out in the wilderness, too, there's a lot of uh, forest noises, I don't mm-hmm. want to say an E.T. But again, I, it's a, I think it's a well-made movie that they just sort of, 
maybe if it's it's kind of a, a movie where it's like, eh, I don't really know what to nominate. What's like one of the best made movies of the year? E.T. Yeah, Th- throw it in there. Kind of like when it when it gets the uh, like the technical um, laurels in visuals or other things. It's kind of like with it, some other things come in with that, like sound can come in with that, or editing and sometimes cinematography, other things to kind of pull what they pulled off together. And maybe it's just Spielberg being so on top of his game at that point that he just, like, it's kind of like Quentin Tarantino's uh, screenplay nominations. Some people just assume he's going to get one uh, every time he makes a movie, yeah. where Spielberg at that point, you know, he's coming off of uh, Raiders and. Close Encounters, and uh, at that point, there's like, well, if Spielberg made a movie, I'm sure it sounds great. Mm-hmm. So, not my vote, but I don't. I, I guess I don't have a problem with its nomination. But Tron, yeah, I I was able to hear some surround sound, which was kind of cool in my uh, in my viewing of Tron. But again, I, I don't really think the sound was anything remarkable. But Maybe its nomination was just to make up for the fact that they weren't going to nominate it in uh, its most obvious category. <laughs> so it did not get, it was very uh, controversially, did not get a visual effects nomination. Um, do we know why? Like, is, is, is the, the reason that the director gave, is that true? Do we know? Um, hard I guess to we say should say there. what that is. Yeah. So the direct so in in like the Wikipedia or IMDb trivia, they say like it was disqualified by the Academy without the use of computers was cheating. That's almost like verbatim what they say. But it but the source of that is essentially the movie's director. Who that's that's what his take on it was. Um, I do know that the visuals in in reading about some of the backstory of the movie, the visuals were very controversial because this was. A production that was uh, um, um, partially executed by Disney's department and their animation department, who would get them to help their visuals out. And there was apparently a lot of the Disney um, Disney hand-drawn animators who refused to work on it, even when they would be assigned to work on Tron, but they wouldn't because they thought that uh, computers would replace them and it wasn't real animation. And you know, they were actually pretty right. <laughs> That, that was going to happen. Um, so a tech category where there's a blooming threat of this could take away people, I could see as being um, part of the campaign. I couldn't pull up any like story. They didn't really have a gold derby at the time, like compiling mm-hmm. all the industry stories, what was going on. But I could see, you know, in Disney being a huge player, it's their movie, but their people are like very controversially hands off on the movie and don't really want to have a hand in, you know, like what was going on in the eighties at the time, people in manufacturing plants used to make things by hand and they'd have to train or, you know, teach, teach uh, robots how to do their job and then they'd be out of a job. It's kind of that, that story. So was that what happened here or did people just not like it and it just wasn't seen enough? It, it's hard to say. I will. I will say that I think it probably. I would have definitely nominated it for visual effects. It's. It's pretty. Um, I'm trying to think of another word for other than singular, but it's. It's. Uh, it's very ambitious and very. Uh, it's pretty stunning and dazzling in in some parts, and especially trying to put my mindset in 1982, and it would have 
probably blown my socks off at the time. You know, if I uh, <clears throat> if I if I were better about doing proper research for this podcast, I would I would have this information. But I, I want to say that a lot of the guys who worked on the technical side of Tron wound up being like huge, huge uh, figures in like uh, visual effects over the like the next few decades. Um, but I don't know. I don't have their names. I, I've I've seen I've, I've seen it mentioned in some videos that I've watched before where they say. Uh, you know, this some movie that some visually stunning movie was made by uh, the, the graphics were made by so and so who got their kind of their start working on Tron back in the day. So I know it was a it was a launching pad for a lot of uh, of really, um, like I said, major players in that industry as it blossomed over the next couple of decades. Yeah, I think the the director had a animation company, which is how he. Uh... He got to make this movie. Is he made like a anim, like a thirty second animation that featured Tron, and his animation department had both Brad Bird in it, of of Pixar fame, and Henry Selleck who did uh, Night uh, Night Before Christmas, and I think and also Coraline and a lot of the, the those kind of movies. Um, very influential stop animation uh, person. Um, I was bored one day, and in the IMDb, you can kind of uh, you can go into a department and refine, like, uh, or sort by popularity of the person, and see if someone random is like in the makeup department or something. So I saw those two, and those kind of those two kind of stuck out to me. Yeah. Um, I, I was just reading the Wikipedia about Tron. It was originally scheduled to be released in Christmas, uh, but. They wanted it to compete with The Secret of Nim, so it was rushed up to July, where it wound up having to compete against E.T., uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Blade Runner, and Poltergeist. So that might be why <laughs> Tron is not... It was not the, the deftly handled. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, voluntarily it's really... entering a, uh, a shredder of box office combat. And again, you know, I, I pointed out that this movie feels like it's a little undercooked in certain areas, and I Maybe the fact that it was rushed five months earlier than its original release date might be a reason why it feels that way. Yeah, especially the time-consuming nature of the animation. Like, losing time on a normal movie would be one thing, but losing time on a computer-animated movie is, you know, you're going to sacrifice a ton. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially back then. Like, uh, I've, I've... That, um... Okay, you're gonna have to lead me to this one. Who who directed Toy Story? Who's the the big Pixar guy? John Lasseter. Lasseter, yeah, yeah. So John Lasseter, he he did that famous uh, scene for the Sherlock Holmes movie, where the the knight like jumps out of the stained glass and walks. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but he like walks towards. It's like, it's like a minute long, uh, and it took him like this came out in the mid '80s, I want to say, and that one sequence took him like six months mm-hmm. or more to do. So, for an entire movie, uh, three or four years earlier, to uh, to be doing this, yeah, and and to rush that job by five months, they did a pretty remarkable <laughs> job. Yeah. Um, would you? And it, had it been nominated for visual effects, would you have voted for it over E.T., Blade Runner, or Poltergeist? Ooh. Those are some tough ones to go up against, though. Blade Blade Runner is such like an influential from its visuals. Um, 
I don't it's know about the effects though. Yeah, the special effects or are probably just creating the uh, the techno noir um, environment you see in kind of the transition stuff. There's not really anything. There's not really like a. Uh, the, I haven't seen it in a couple years, but there's not anything that's coming to mind as like something that was particularly dazzling or like. Um, right. Really, that 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 jumps out that much to me on that movie. I've never seen Poltergeist, but I feel like it might be my pick here. Um, people seem to, uh, from what I've heard, it's it's a effectively scary. Uh, E.T. really doesn't have a lot of visual effects either, other than the the, the moonshot, which is iconic. <laughs> yeah, and this is if if this is if the directors to be believed and like computers were cheating for visual effects. There's a lot of visual effects Oscars that went to practical visual effects. And yeah, that's true. He, the E.T. himself is like a combination of, I don't know, production designers, uh, makeup artists, visual mm-hmm. effects supervisors. Like like Stan Winston-style visual effects wins and makeup wins versus yeah. what we think of nowadays. So I, I can see why it was nominated. Um, Poltergeist is really great practical effects of... of you know, a poltergeist that does a bunch of crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of uh, upsetting images and uh, skeletons and all kinds of things. Well, do you think Tron was uh, was shafted in any other categories? Uh, I was trying to think uh, creatively about it. Uh, none of the actors for me. Usually we always say at least one actor and like, but none of the acting really for me. There were no, there were no good performances in this movie, really. I, mean, I think the best we had was uh, uh, Warner, probably, who played Dillinger. But yeah, he was convincing. Or, or, or Jeff Bridges. Bridges is kind of always decent. He's, he's always charming. There, yeah. There's a little bit of not caring to his acting here. <laughs> it's kind of just... He kind of seems yeah. to just be, just be relying on charisma. I mean, he's, he's got that in spades, but... It's kind of like he's he feels it's, like he's slumming it while he's talking to these characters. It's a performance that seems like he doesn't really understand what movie he's in. Like, uh, but he's so he's just relying kind of on what he he can do. Like, it, like it's the kind of movie where like I don't really know much about this Flynn, and I don't I really don't know about all these things they're having me do. So I'm just gonna be cool and hope, and just wing it. It's like you hear it, hear of foreign productions or like actors that come over and learn their parts phonetically. That's kind of how how it seems like he's doing it. Is he learned his like someone just is speaking to it and he's kind of just repeating it, learning his lines phonetically there. Um, the uh, the the journey song only solutions uh, was uh, original to this movie and did not get a nomination. Um, when uh, I don't know, it's a tough year though. Up Where We Belong, Eye of the Tiger. Uh, then it drifts off a bit, though. Um, How Do You Keep the Music Playing from the film Best Friends was nominated. <laughs> and and If We Were in Love from the film Yes, Giorgio was nominated for Best Original Song. Uh, I'm just kidding. That Journey song kind of sucks, too. But, yeah, it's, just, um, it's not great, and it's just tacked good. on to the, the credits. Yeah. So I discount it instantly. Okay, so... I assume there's no real cast highlights you wanna you wanna jump on here. Um, most of these people were were really had were not uh, particularly successful careers as far as uh, 
name brand recognition goes. Cindy Morgan, who played Laura and Yori, she uh, is probably most famous for Caddyshack. Mm-hmm. She's uh, she's Lacey, I think is her name in uh, Lacey Underall in uh, in, in Caddyshack. Um, uh, most of these other uh, people, Brooke, uh, Bruce Boxleitner, I don't know him from. Has he been in anything else? I feel like. It may not be true, but I feel like he's just in Mockbusters. Like, <laughs> oh, yep, that, that sounds right. I feel like there was like a, a like Transmorphers. He was in that movie when Transformers came out. That may or may not be true, but that's just the vibe I have for Bruce Boxleitner. All right. <clears throat> well, um, is this a, is this a a good Jeff Bridges performance, or is this a bottom tier Jeff Bridges performance? <sighs> it's. It's probably pretty bottom tier for me. Yeah, I think so too. Under uh, with the caveat that he's kind of always charming. He's he's got a good screen presence all the time. Yeah, I don't think he gets a lot of uh, good stuff to do here. I don't no. think he's well serviced by the script. Okay, well, in what will be our fastest ever director discussion, <laughs> a record that I think will stand for a while. Um, It'll be a while before it'll, it's hard to find a director this with uh, so little to his uh, to his name here. But um, having a movie with such a high cultural imprint too, yeah, it, it's it's really weird. Like everybody's heard of Tron, even if you're not that into movies, you've, you've probably heard of Tron. Mm-hmm. You can probably there's a visual you can probably conjure, uh, even if you're not, even if you've never seen it. I've I, I could before I'd never seen it before I'd seen it, but. Um, Okay, let's go through Lisberger, Stephen Lisberger, who I had never heard of uh, yep. before watching this movie. Uh, he has four feature films: uh, Animal Olympics, which was uh, it's a made-for-TV film in 1980. Yes, I watched part of this. <laughs> of course, <laughs> it's on Amazon Prime. It was a tie-in with the Olympics that were going to happen that summer, and then uh-huh. we uh, we boycotted it, obviously. Uh, the the with, Moscow Games. Yeah, the uh, Soviet invasion into Afghanistan. I believe that's that year. My U.S. history is to be believed. Um, yeah, he created the Olympics tie-in, and without the Olympics, they showed it in prime time. It was essentially people from SNL voicing... Uh, uh, racial and national <laughs> stereotypes. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's, it's yeah. the SNL of the time. So it's like uh, uh, Harry Shearer, uh, Billy Crystal, and uh, Gilda Radner are a bunch of a uh, bunch of animals that are supposed to be like like people. There is mm-hmm. a. Uh, um, I don't think she's a. There's like a, a long distance runner who is a uh, cheetah. So pretty clever. There's like a, it's just all kinds of different animals from different uh, yeah. countries. Like the there's a goat who's a runner and his name is like Jacques Fromage. Just really silly stuff. Um, but this is the movie you mentioned that Brad Bird worked on. Yeah, <clears throat> this uh, I don't know if this is where he got his start on, but this is where uh, you know he he and Henry Henry Selick were both in part of a. Steven Lisberger's production company doing it. And it's kind of just like a send-up of games, and they have, like, alligators and dogs and things do with silly voices. Well, at a 3.3, this is his highest-rated film on the <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, he followed. <laughs> yeah, It's not terrible, but I definitely don't recommend anyone really watch it. 
My favorite part is that there is a uh, there is a uh, uh, commentator or there's a, like a TV announcer that Gilda Radner voices, and she's a, a she's a bird, <clears throat> and she's she kind of has a lisp, and she's Barbara Wal- Warblers. <laughs> And she's Barbara Wabos and does that old uh, Barbara Walters which, voice. Wait who, wait, who was it? Was it Gilda Radner? Gilda Radner, yeah. Yeah, which she did that back in, she was doing that bit back in 75 on mm-hmm. the first season of SNL. That was yeah. like one of her go-tos. Is, uh, I just, so they're just recycling jokes. Yeah, I just like the pun of the name Barbara Warblers. It's, yeah. it's kind of awkward to say out loud. Warblers. So he followed up Animal Olympics with Tron. And uh, after that, he's only made two other films, Hot Pursuit in 1987 and Slipstream in 1989. So from 3.3 to 3.2 to 2.7 to 2.3, his films get progressively worse every time he comes out a new one, according to the users of Letterboxd. Mm -hmm. I, having not seen Animal Olympics, but just having heard your description, I got to put Tron over it um, as far as a directorial achievement. Um, but where would you uh, is is Tron? Uh, <laughs> where would you put Tron? Uh, I'd give the silver medal to Animal Olympics, and the gold medal to Tron, and uh, just no no bronze awarded this year. I haven't seen any of these two movies, but um, at the risk of uh, being dismissive, I don't think that they would be very good from what I've read about them. Yeah, no, they're. By that point, he he really wasn't uh, being asked to. Did did Lisberger do anything else really? Like it's, it, I, I feel like maybe he he gets he he didn't really get good movies as a director. But may, did he did he have a career as a back in animation in some way? Because it seems like that was his bread and butter. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, they said he spent most of the 90s and 2000s writing screenplays. Um, not, not his forte. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Based on Tron. But... He tried to convince Disney to develop a Tron sequel for years. And eventually they greenlit uh, Tron Legacy, which he was a producer on, but he didn't write or direct it or really have much to do with it besides that. <laughs> there was also a Tron uh, television show, which... I don't remember ever happening. Huh. Uh-uh. But this is kind of after Slipstream. That's kind of it. Besides uh, some producing credits. Well, uh, would you care to guess where Steven Lisberger ranks? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to cheat and see how many directors you've done. Because that would probably give it away. <laughs> Maybe this, this guess is just made based on how many entries could you have possibly done. I mean, there are... There are, I will say there are directors who uh, do not move the needle at all. I mean, Uwe Boll is in my director's uh, list, and he has never made a movie that was good enough to, uh, to register any kind of points in my system. I got you. Um, so I'm going to go in blind for how many total directors you have in here. I'm going to put them yeah. in, like, 690. Um, okay, well, if I give you my total number of directors, which is... 1,764. <laughs> you know, I was thinking of a high number, and I was like, there's no way Brent would have logged that many, and I undershot <laughs> it by half. <laughs> 1,700, I would put him in 1,490. 1,449. 
Whoa, I was pretty close. Very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all on the. I think it's mostly due to uh, the meager performance of Animal Olympics. <laughs> get some, get some of that placement. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's. If there's, you got uh, Olympics fever with the Tokyo stuff happening and the, the U.S. trials, check out Animal Olympics and be confused. <laughs> and and I just I, I threw this in because there wasn't really much to talk about with the director, but um. There's a website called They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? And I love this website. It mm-hmm. has, um, they keep, every year they update their list of the thousand most acclaimed films of all time. And it's it's really one of the better lists, I think, of that nature, where you get a lot of international stuff, you get a lot of older stuff. And they have a starting list of like, it's like, it's like 20,000 movies or something. And they... Uh, have that available in an Excel spreadsheet for you to download if you ever get interested, and it's on their website. But um, so I, I, I have that spreadsheet, and I looked up Tron on it, and Tron ranks as the three thousand one hundred twenty seventh most acclaimed film of all time. Which it's hard to even imagine that scope of uh, that number of movies. Like once you get past like a top. 300 or 400 movie at that point i just don't understand how many movies there are i think when i try to do that in my head like is this a top thousand movie is this is is this a top ten thousand movie is it a top five thousand movie those numbers don't really mean much to me i've i've struggled with that yeah that's true it's kind of like i don't know thinking of per capita (laughs) like a country's exports yeah it's like such as or like a national debt it's such like an insanely high number like I'm trying to think, uh, I don't. Even, I'm trying to think how many movies I've done a rating of on Letterboxd, and I don't. I don't think I'm even at one thousand. Yeah. I. Uh, I certainly. I don't think I've got a thousand ratings on there because I deleted most of my ratings. But I've. I don't. I don't. Even, I wonder if I've seen three thousand movies in my lifetime. I feel like I probably haven't. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't have. know. I don't know. Um, okay, so uh, moving on, let's, let's wrap up Tron with uh, what is what is the legacy? What is the Tron legacy? Um, definitely the animation, and uh, you know, um, John Laster said without Tron there would be no Toy Story. Kind of pioneering and championing in the face of controversy, computers in film. Um, mm-hmm. I'll take John Laster's word for it. Uh, they're I don't know. There, there might have been a Toy Story anyway. That sounds like a little bit of blown smoke, but um, it's definitely the first movie I can think of that really treats computers this seriously and is that integral to a plot and production. Um, and uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but IMDb said it has a Guinness World Record for the first use of computer-generated animation, which seems... I don't know. That seems uh, suspicious, but I'll, I'll go with that on that. Sometimes those Guinness World Records are a little tricky with how they're worded and mm-hmm. how they're achieved. Uh, they're fairly easy to get, from what I understand, for in, a, in a lot of cases. But um, uh, well, actually, my one final question is: uh, so, I'm curious, what would your letterbox rating of Tron be, and would you recommend? Do you feel like it's a movie people should see? Yeah. Um, it's 3,127th most acclaimed film of all time sounds about right 
But I would still uh, probably argue it, it should be in like the thousand and one movies you should see before you die, like that kind of list they do, mm-hmm. just because it's uh, it seems to be influential within the industry and influential to people. It's important to some people. It's very important to some people. Some people love this movie and would would give it five stars. I'd probably give it a I don't know if I was feeling nice a three, but probably more naturally. A two and a half. Maybe I'd be at a three. Yeah, after after discussing this movie, I, I think I just, I don't know, I still struggle with like, uh, it's, is it a good movie? Is it a good movie? I, I don't know if it's a good movie or not. Uh, yeah. is it, we come back to it, our first question. <laughs> it feels wrong, though, to just call it an average movie because there's so, there's so much of the, the DNA of this movie that I think is above average. And uh, it has the ambition of a great movie, but the execution yeah. of an average movie, and it, it's kind of like the the real rating is somewhere in between those. Yeah, so I don't know if this is just a, a for me on my scale, which is average movies get a 2.5 or a 3, depending on uh, whether I particularly like them within that category or not, or is it a 3.5, which is just a, a good movie that I think falls short of other good movies in the areas. I don't know. I don't have to tune into Letterboxd to see where I land on this. Um, I do think it's a movie people should see, though. It's yeah. more recommendable than it is good. Yeah. To me, there's nothing that looks like it. Just just the black and white contrast with the neon coloring is just... Uh, it's it's just so Tron. There's no other adjective for it. It's very tron it tr- It's Tron. Tron-esque. Um, so finally, before the last thing we have to do before we move on from Tron, uh, how is it related to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Um, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank. Do you have Do you have anything? Stolen property. Ah. It sets sets the wheels in motion. There's a stolen sword, and there are stolen video games in in Tron. Kind of kind of get get things moving. Yeah, kind of the MacGuffin of the file that gets moved. Versus mm-hmm. the MacGuffin of the the sword, mm-hmm. is I don't know is is the sword a MacGuffin in Crouching Tiger? Pretty I think much. The, I think the sword is a MacGuffin. I think that I wasn't sure if it uh, if the files qualified as a MacGuffin because I don't know that he's looking for them. Um, maybe he is. I don't know. the The plot is a big nothing murder for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that's that's about it. Does, does anybody fly around in Tron? No, unfortunately, no. Uh, okay, so what's next? Um, we're going from a movie that uh, is was our lowest, uh, as far as Letterboxd ratings go, is our, the worst movie we have watched yet. Uh, we're coming up on one that very well might be the best. I, um, mm. I think this is the highest rated movie we've watched yet on, on Letterboxd. It's a 4.1 average. Ooh. Which uh, I think maybe edges out. I think Pan's Labyrinth was a three nine. Die Hard's like a three nine. So uh, I think Crouching Tiger was either a three nine or a four. It might be a three. I think nine. it's it's three nine or four. And so this is a four one. So um, it's better than all of those movies. <laughs> That's my clue. This is a movie you've seen, and okay. it's a movie you have rated on Letterboxd at four and a half stars. So oh. you're a fan. So hopefully you'll enjoy rewatching it. I have never seen this movie, and I would actually. This is a. This is probably the answer to the question of what is the most beloved movie that Brent has never seen? 
Hmm. And I think it's I think it's this movie. Um, it was nominated for four Oscars. It was nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Score hmm. for the 1967 was when it came out. 67. You yeah. said actor, supporting actor? Screenplay and score. Whew. Actor, supporting actor. Um, 67 is... Well, it's not... I'm trying to think of some of the movies from 67. I think it's, I think 67 is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf year. It's like, but Elizabeth Taylor was obviously nominated, so it's not that. That would probably be highly rated. Uh, can you give me another clue? It is set in Gainesville, Florida. Dang, you think that would that would give it away a little more for me? Um, it's, it's not in the heat of the night because that was also that was Best Picture winner, and I know you've seen that. Um, is it? No, it's too early for. Or too late for Streetcar, and that was also had actress nominees. I was thinking Brando for some reason, but I don't think it's a Brando. Uh, it has a quote that finished number eleven on the AFI's top one hundred quotes list, uh, delivered by uh, actor Struther Martin. Oh yeah, Cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand Luke will be our next selection. Nice. So I've never seen Cool Hand Luke. And I, it is, I feel like it's probably the most beloved movie that I've never seen. Um, it I, very frequently pops up in a lot of people's greatest movies of all time list. And shame on me for never having seen it. I'm actually surprised it wasn't nominated for uh, for Best Picture given all the other accolades that it got. Yeah, that is surprising. It's a, a supporting actor winner for George Kennedy. Yes. As a drag line. <laughs> That, so, that'll be fun That's and we, we get to get into the whole Paul Newman of it all it's streaming on Netflix ah okay. do you know the director uh Cool Hand Luke uh no not off by hand uh, Stuart Rosenberg hmm who did uh, I think his next biggest movie is the, Amity, the Amityville Horror interesting he did Brubaker which we've seen yeah um with Redford yeah, what is considered a great movie by a director who didn't necessarily have, a, you know, a, an acclaimed career necessarily. So I think that's interesting too. But anyway, Cool Hand Luke on Netflix, nineteen sixty-seven will be our next episode. And uh, thanks for listening. And David, you want to take us out? I'll do my best. Thanks. <laughs> you don't uh, have to mention the groups. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for uh, listening. And the things they can do to help us is to uh, subscribe to the podcast and give it, give us a review. Uh, we appreciate your feedback. And uh, if you're enjoying it, let a friend know. Especially appreciate our peeps in the um, effectively cinephiled. Yeah. What's up, guys? And uh, friends on uh, Letterboxed. Um, uh, yeah, let us know if, if you like us, and if you don't like us, uh, don't tell a soul. Don't tell anybody we're bad. <laughs> this is a secret. If we're if we're terrible, it's it's between you and. and... <laughs> yeah. Um, we're hosted on the, the media by us. Uh, go to that website if you want to see some stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to email us, we're 
themediabyus at gmail.com. We have a Twitter at themediabyus. And uh, I think that's it. Yeah, also just a shout out to a friend podcast, The Great Movies Pod, uh, which is uh, it's very good. People should check it out if they have not already. Yeah, I, I recently listened to their uh, real life podcast. That was the, the uh, Albert Brooks movie, and mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun. They they do uh, uh, they do a great job over there. Great they conversation. Do. All right. Well, that's it. Till next time. Thank you, David. End of line. <laughs> <laughs> Is he like that's what mass control says? Yeah, that's what I yeah, did. I, I got it. I got it. It's it's a good finish. All right. See ya. All right. Bye.